chapters twenty one and twenty two of john barleycorn or alcoholic memoirs by jack london this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org chapter twenty one but behold as soon as i went out on the adventure path i met john barleycorn again i moved through a world of strangers and the act of drinking together made one acquainted with men and opened the way to adventures it might be in a saloon with jingled townsmen or with a genial railroad man well lighted up and armed with pocket flasks or with a bunch of alky stiffs in a hangout yes and it might be in a prohibition state such as iowa was in eighteen ninety four when i wandered up the main street of des moines and was variously invited by strangers into various blind pigs i remember drinking in barber shops plumbing establishments and furniture stores always it was john barleycorn even a tramp in those halcyon days could get most frequently drunk i remember inside the prison at buffalo how some of us got magnificently jingled and how on the streets of buffalo after our release another jingle was financed with pennies begged on the main drag i had no call for alcohol but when i was with those who drank i drank with them i insisted on travelling or loafing with the livest keenest men and it was just these live keen ones that did most of the drinking they were the more comradely men the more venturous the more individual perhaps it was too much temperament that made them turn from the commonplace and humdrum to find relief in lying and fantastic sureties of john barleycorn be that as it may the men i liked best desired most to be with were invariably to be found in john barleycorn's company in the course of my tramping over the united states i achieved a new concept as a tramp i was behind the scenes of society ay and down in the cellar i could watch the machinery work i saw the wheels of the social machine go around and i learned that the dignity of manual labor wasn't what i had been told it was by the teachers preachers and politicians the men without trades were helpless cattle if one learned a trade he was compelled to belong to a union in order to work at his trade and his union was compelled to bully and slug the employers unions in order to hold up wages or hold down hours 
the employers' unions likewise bullied and slugged. I couldn't see any dignity at all. And when a workman got old or had an accident, he was thrown into the scrap heap like any worn-out machine. I saw too many of this sort who were making anything but dignified ends of life. So my new concept was that manual labor was undignified and that it didn't pay. No trade for me was my decision, and no superintendent's daughters. And no criminality, I also decided. That would be almost as disastrous as to be a laborer. Brains paid, not brawn, and I resolved never again to offer my muscles for sale in the brawn market. Brain and brain only would I sell. I returned to California with the firm intention of developing my brain. This meant school education. I had gone through the grammar school long ago, so I entered the Oakland High School. To pay my way, I worked as a janitor. My sister helped me, too. And I was not above mowing anybody's lawn or taking up and beating carpets when I had half a day to spare. I was working to get away from work, and I buckled down to it with a grim realization of the paradox. Boy and girl love was left behind, and along with it, Haiti and Louis Shattuck, and the early evening strolls. I hadn't the time. I joined the Henry Clay Debating Society. I was received into the homes of some of the members where I met nice girls whose skirts reached the ground. I dallied with little home clubs wherein we discussed poetry and art and the nuances of grammar. I joined the Socialist Local where we studied and orated political economy, philosophy, and politics. I kept half a dozen membership cards working in the free library and did an immense amount of collateral reading. And for a year and a half on end, I never took a drink, nor thought of taking a drink. I hadn't the time, and I certainly did not have the inclination. Between my janitor work, my studies, and innocent amusements such as chess, I hadn't a moment to spare. I was discovering a new world, and such was the passion of my exploration that the old world of John Barleycorn held no inducements for me. Come to think of it, I did enter a saloon. I went to see Johnny Heinhold in The Last Chance, and I went to borrow money. And right here is another phase of John Barleycorn. Saloon keepers are notoriously good fellows. On an average, they perform vastly greater generosities than do businessmen. When I simply had to have ten dollars, desperate, with no place to turn, I went to see 
Johnny Heinhold. Several years had passed since I had been in his place or spent a cent across his bar. And when I went to borrow the ten dollars, I didn't buy a drink either. And Johnny Heinhold let me have the ten dollars without security or interest. More than once, in the brief days of my struggle for an education, I went to see Johnny Heinhold to borrow money. When I entered the university, I borrowed forty dollars from him, without interest, without security, without buying a drink. And yet, and here is the point, the custom and the code, in the days of my prosperity, after the lapse of years, I have gone out of my way by many a long block to spend across Johnny Heinhold's bar deferred interest on the various loans. Not that Johnny Heinhold asked me to do it or expected me to do it. I did it as I have said, in obedience to the code I have learned along with all the other things connected with John Barleycorn. In distress, when a man has no other place to turn, when he hasn't the slightest bit of security which a savage-hearted pawnbroker would consider, he can go to some saloon-keeper he knows. Gratitude is inherently human. When the man so helped has money again, depend upon it that a portion will be spent across the bar of the saloon-keeper who befriended him. Why, I recollect the early days of my writing career, when the small sums of money I earned from the magazines came with tragic irregularity, while at the same time I was staggering along with a growing family, a wife, children, a mother, a nephew, and my mammy Jenny and her old husband fallen on evil days. There were two places at which I could borrow money, a barber shop and a saloon. The barber charged me five percent per month in advance. That is to say, when I borrowed one hundred dollars, he handed me ninety-five. The other five dollars he retained as advance interest for the first month. And on the second month, I paid him five dollars more and continued to do so each month until I made a ten-strike with the editors and lifted the loan. The other place to which I came in trouble was the saloon. The saloon-keeper I had known by sight for a couple of years. I had never spent my money in his saloon, and even when I borrowed from him I didn't spend any money yet never did he refuse me any sum I asked of him. Unfortunately, before I became prosperous, he moved away to another city, and to this day I regret that he is gone. It is the code I have learned, 
the right thing to do and the right thing i do right now did i know where he is would be to drop in on occasion and spend a few dollars across his bar for old sake's sake and gratitude this is not to exalt saloon keepers i have written it to exalt the power of john barleycorn and to illustrate one more of the myriad ways by which a man is brought in contact with john barleycorn until in the end he finds he cannot get along without him but to return to the run of my narrative away from the adventure path up to my ears in study every moment occupied i lived oblivious to john barleycorn's existence nobody about me drank if any had drunk and had they offered it to me i surely would have drunk as it was when i had spare moments i spent them playing chess or going with nice girls who were themselves students or in riding a bicycle whenever i was fortunate enough to have it out of the pawnbroker's possession what i am insisting upon all the time is this in me was not the slightest trace of alcoholic desire and this despite the long and severe apprenticeship i had served under john barleycorn i had come back from the other side of life to be delighted with this arcadian simplicity of student youths and student maidens also i had found my way into the realm of the mind and i was intellectually intoxicated alas as i was to learn at a later period intellectual intoxication too has its katzenjammer chapter twenty two three years was the time required to go through the high school i grew impatient also my schooling was becoming financially impossible at such rate i could not last out and i did greatly want to go to the state university when i had done a year of high school i decided to attempt a shortcut i borrowed the money and paid to enter the senior class of a cramming joint of academy i was scheduled to graduate right into the university at the end of four months thus saving two years and how i did cram i had two years new work to do in a third of a year for five weeks i crammed until simultaneous quadratic equations and chemical formulas fairly oozed from my ears and then the master of the academy took me aside he was very sorry but he was compelled to give me back my tuition fee and to ask me to leave the school it wasn't a matter of scholarship 
I stood well in my classes, and did he graduate me into the university, he was confident that in that institution I would continue to stand well. The trouble was that tongues were gossiping about my case. What? In four months accomplished two years' work. It would be a scandal and the universities were becoming severer in their treatment of accredited prep schools. He couldn't afford such a scandal, therefore I must gracefully depart. I did, and I paid back the borrowed money and gritted my teeth and started to cram by myself. There were three months yet before the university entrance examinations. Without laboratories, without coaching, sitting in my bedroom, I proceeded to compress that two years' work into three months and to keep reviewed on the previous year's work. Nineteen hours a day I studied. For three months I kept this pace, only breaking it on several occasions. My body grew weary, my mind grew weary, but I stayed with it. My eyes grew weary and began to twitch, but they did not break down. Perhaps, toward the last, I got a bit dotty. I know that at that time I was confident I had discovered the formula for squaring the circle but I resolutely deferred the working of it out until after the examinations. Then I would show them. Came the several days of the examinations, during which time I scarcely closed my eyes in sleep, devoting every moment to cramming and reviewing. And when I turned in my last examination paper, I was in full possession of a splendid case of brain fag. I didn't want to see a book. I didn't want to think or to lay eyes on anybody who was liable to think. There was but one prescription for such a condition, and I gave it to myself, the adventure path. I didn't wait to learn the result of my examinations. I stowed a roll of blankets and some cold food into a borrowed Whitehall boat and set sail. Out of the Oakland estuary I drifted on the last of the early morning ebb, caught the first of the flood up bay, and raced along with a spanking breeze. San Pablo Bay was smoking, and the Carquinez Straits off the Selby smelter were smoking too, as I picked up ahead and left astern the old landmarks I had first learned with Nelson in the unreefed reindeer. Benicia showed before me. I opened the bight of Turner's shipyard, rounded the Solano wharf, and surged along abreast of the patch of tools and the clustering fishermen's arks where in the old days I had lived and drunk deep. And right here something happened to me, the gravity of which I never dreamed for many a long year to come. 
I had had no intention of stopping at Benicia. The tide favored, the wind was fair and howling, glorious sailing for a sailor. Bullhead and army points showed ahead, marking the entrance to Susan Bay, which I knew was smoking. And yet, when I laid eyes on those fishing arks lying in the waterfront tools without debate, on the instance I put down my tiller, came in on the sheet, and headed for the shore. On the instant, out of the profound of my brain fag, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to drink. I wanted to get drunk. The call was imperative. There was no uncertainty about it. More than anything else in the world, my frayed and frazzled mind wanted surcease from weariness in the way it knew surcease would come. And right here is the point. For the first time in my life, I consciously, deliberately desired to get drunk. It was a new a totally different manifestation of John Barleycorn's power. It was not a body need for alcohol, it was a mental desire. My overworked and jaded mind wanted to forget. And here the point is drawn to its sharpest. Granted my prodigious brain fag, nevertheless, had I never drunk in the past, the thought would never have entered my mind to get drunk now. Beginning with physical intolerance for alcohol, for years drinking only for the sake of comradeship and because alcohol was everywhere on the adventure path, I had now reached the stage where my brain cried out, not merely for a drink, but for a drunk. And had I not been so long used to alcohol, my brain would not have so cried out. I should have sailed on past Bullhead, and in the smoking white of Susan Bay, and in the wine of wind that filled my sail and poured through me, I should have forgotten my weary brain and rested and refreshed it. So I sailed in to shore, made all fast, and hurried up along the arks. Charlie Legrant fell on my neck. His wife Lizzie folded me to her capacious breast. Billy Murphy and Joe Lloyd and all the survivors of the old guard got around me and their arms around me. Charlie seized the can and started for Jorgensen's saloon across the railroad tracks. That meant beer. I wanted whiskey, so I called after him to bring a flask. Many times that flask journeyed across the railroad tracks and back. More old friends of the old free and easy times dropped in fishermen, Greeks and Russians, and French. They took 
turns in treating, and treated all around in turn again. They came and went, but I stayed on and drank with all. I guzzled, I swill. I ran the liquor down and joyed as the maggots in my brain. And Clam came in, Nelson's partner before me, handsome as ever, but more reckless, half insane, burning himself out with whiskey. He had just had a quarrel with his partner on the sloop Gazelle, and knives had been drawn and blows struck, and he was bent on maddening the fever of the memory with more whiskey. And while we downed it, we remembered Nelson, and that he had stretched out his great shoulders for the last long sleep in this very town of Benicia. And we went over the memory of him, and remembered only the good things of him, and sent out the flask to be filled and drank again. They wanted me to stay over, but through the open door I could see the brave wind on the water, and my ears were filled with the roar of it. And while I forgot that I had plunged into the books nineteen hours a day for three solid months, Charlie LeGrant shifted my outfit into a big Columbia River salmon boat. He added charcoal and a fisherman's brazier, a coffee pot and frying pan, and the coffee and the meat, and a black bass fresh from the water that day. They had to help me down the rickety wharf and into the salmon boat. Likewise, they stretched my boom and sprit until the sail set like a board. Some feared to set the sprit, but I insisted, and Charlie had no doubts. He knew me of old, and knew that I could sail as long as I could see. They cast off my painter. I put the tiller up, filled away before it, and with dizzy eyes checked and steadied the boat on her course and waved farewell. The tide had turned, and the fierce ebb, running in the teeth of a fiercer wind, kicked up a stiff, upstanding sea. Susin Bay was white with wrath and sea lump, but a salmon boat can sail, and I knew how to sail a salmon boat. So I drove her into it, and through it, and across, and maundered loud, and chanted my disdain for all the books and schools. Cresting seas filled me a foot or so with water, but I laughed at it, sloshing about my feet, and chanted my disdain for the wind and the water. I hailed myself a master of life, riding on the back of the unleashed elements, and John Barleycorn rode with me. Amid dissertations on mathematics and philosophy and spoutings and quotations, I sang all the old songs learned in the days when I went from the cannery to the oyster banks to be a pirate. Such songs as Black Lulu, 
flying cloud treat my daughter kindly the boston burglar come all you rambling gambling men i wished i was a little bird shen endoa and ranzo boys ranzo hours afterward in the fires of sunset where the sacramento and the san joaquin tumble their mighty floods together i took the new york cut-off skimmed across the smooth landlocked water past black diamond on into the san joaquin and on to antioch where somewhat sobered and magnificently hungry i laid alongside a big potato sloop that had a familiar rig here were old friends aboard who fried my black bass in olive oil then too there was a meaty fisherman stew delicious with garlic and crusty italian bread without butter and all washed down with pint mugs of thick and heady claret my salmon boat was a soap but in the snug cabin of the sloop dry blankets and a dry bunk were mine and we lay and smoked and yarned of old days while overhead the wind screamed through the rigging and taut halyards drummed against the mast end of chapter twenty two